morning. It is three hours earlier for me than it is for you, so let's just bring those expectations all the way down. (laughs) Haven't had enough coffee yet, fix it, Jesus. All right, I'm so happy to be here with all of you. Uh, Let me pray really quickly before we start. Jesus, we are so grateful. You are everything to us. I pray that you would help me to get out of the way that the word that you have, that the spirit has for every person that is within this building, that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would understand what it is that you want to say to them today. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, first of all, hi, you're in for a treat. (laughs) Oh, so I live in a small city just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. It's called Abbotsford. Um, it is even more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. And from what I hear, a lot of you will be visiting us there on a permanent basis. So that's great. You'll really enjoy Canada. <laughs> it's going to be good. <laughs> You're not all going to get me in trouble this morning, are you? <laughs> Uh, So as you heard, I'm a writer, um, deeply devoted to the local church, just so grateful to be here with all of you. I've been married for about 17 years now. Uh, My husband and I have four children. I used to refer to them as the tinies. I cannot do that any longer. Uh, My eldest daughter is 11, and she is five foot eight and a half. (laughs) So (laughs) that was nice. She's uh, 11, my son is uh, nine, and then we have a seven-year-old named Evelyn, and then right about the time that we thought we were all finished, um, God surprised us with another new baby, uh, the prime time of my life when my doctor referred to me as having advanced maternal age, so that was great. (laughs) This is really encouraging, thank you. Uh, Her name is Margaret, we call her Maggie. Um, She's very into Batman right now, and so she calls herself Batmegs. There are no obsessions like toddler obsessions. It's really quite precious because I remember with my first baby how I was like, you'll only have organic food and there's no television in this house and you may not have Dora the Explorer shoes. And by the time my fourth baby rolled around, I was like, here are your chicken nuggets and here is your Batman, have a nice morning. <laughs> and so this is, this is just what we do. Um, I think probably uh, I should warn you right out the gate that I come from a charismatic and Pentecostal background, and so I know the way that I teach. Okay, good. It's somebody who doesn't have the steamer trunk of baggage like the rest of us about that. That's great. (laughs) So I know that the way that I preach or the way that I pray may not be the way that you um, personally do or even something that's familiar to you, but I hope that there's room for that. The thing is, is that I come from that as a background, but I probably would best be described these days as ecclesiastically promiscuous. I just love everybody. I have gotten so much life out of so many traditions and backgrounds and ways of understanding and getting to know Jesus. It has brought such richness and goodness to my life, but I'll be honest with you, I am who I am. And so that, that is the way that I, that I um, will often show up in these spaces, so I hope that there's room for that. I left my tambourines and my flags at home. And it's adorable, you all think I'm kidding, so that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, probably the only other thing to really warn you about right out the gate is that I love Jesus with my whole heart. There is zero chill on this subject. I cannot even begin to play it cool. It took me six years of public ministry to manage to get through a sermon without crying over his name, so this is growth. This is what we have done. I'm now a real professional Christian. That's great. (laughs) 
So I'm really excited to be here with all of you, and I'm particularly thrilled about the series that you have been in the middle of talking about the image of God. This is something that has really captured my own imagination and my own heart and spirit uh, for a number of years. My first book that I wrote was called Jesus Feminist, and I don't know anyone else who's managed to tick off almost everybody with one two-word title, so I win. Um, Don't know what I get. other than a lot of people at the Gospel Coalition who don't like me. So we'll just carry on, that's what we'll, that's what we'll do. Um, you know, it's interesting because when I very first, you know, and, and I'll say this too, you know, when I wrote that book a number of years ago, it wasn't with the intent of having it be um, an exhaustive and academic theological treatise on Christian feminism. And anybody who's in the room who is a theologian or an academic says, yes, we know. Um, But for me, it was always meant to be a book or a moment that was giving a glimpse of what life looked like on the other side of saying yes. Of what life looked like on the other side of so many of our missing the point gender debates within the church and what it looks like when men and women are walking together in the fullness and wholeness that the kingdom of God has really brought. The reconciliation between men and women and what that actually would look like. You know, it's interesting to me because I've always identified as a feminist. I was a baby feminist. Um, I, you know, I think I very first became a feminist when I was 11. It was a real, you know, feminist awakening in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, I wanted to believe that girls could deliver the paper too. And so that was, that was the, the key of my awakening, right? But yet at the same time, as I said, I'm Canadian. And so... Um, my baggage around the word feminist is very different, I've realized, than a lot of American evangelicals who came of age in the um, 80s or even in the 90s, perhaps, when there was a resurgence of patriarchal theology that really gripped a lot of the churches. And so it was interesting for me because then I moved to the States uh, in the mid-90s. My husband is American. Uh, He's from Nebraska. He's six foot six. They ate a lot of corn there. Who knew? And so we uh, were married. He was on staff at a large church in Texas for a number of years as a pastor. And it was funny because I would always just say, well, of course I'm a feminist. And, you know, people would sort of, and clutch their pearls. (laughs) And say, well, what kind of feminist? And so I would just sort of laugh and say, oh, I'm a Jesus feminist. You know, and that was sort of my cheeky way of saying that I was a feminist because I was following Jesus. That it wasn't something that I had to fight or that I was always seeking to reconcile feminism and Christianity in my faith, but instead it was precisely because I loved Jesus and I loved scripture and I loved the church that I found myself on this path, that it was something that was very natural to me. And yet at the same time, it's funny because a number of years later, we moved back home and I live on the West Coast and it's more of a post-Christian secular society and it was interesting because I uh, worked in a credit union for a number of years because, you know, at heart, Canadians are all socialists. And so I was there and people would have the exact same reaction when they would find out that I was a Christian. And it was funny because, you know, they'd clutch their Lululemon (laughs) and they would say, What kind of Christian? I think it's because they'd never met one in the wild before, I'll be honest. You know, and most of them, you know, their vision of what they thought a Christian was was, you know, something they tricked out of, you know, the news media, which, let's be honest, didn't do me a whole lot of favors. 
And so it was interesting how it depends on where you are and what context you come from, what sort of baggage maybe you would have around these things. But, you know, at the core, what feminism actually means is this, this radical notion that women are people too. And that's it. It, does, it means that we champion and defend the dignity and the rights and the responsibilities and the glories of women as equal to men. Not greater than, certainly not less than, and we're refusing discrimination against women. That's really at the core what it is. And one of, because I am someone who um, has been deeply shaped by scripture and deeply shaped by following Jesus. I believe that the number one place where women should be flourishing in the world is in the body of Christ. That the number one place where women should be thriving in the world is with us in the church. That this should be a place where women are safe and empowered, that this should be the place where women are able to rise to the full capacity that God has placed within them and that that would be something that we would be known for, that we would be able to set the precedent for and give a glimpse of, and yet, it can often feel as if in the church that women are being asked to become less, that you are supposed to be quieter, and less of a leader, and less awake, and less dangerous that you are supposed to shrink your body to some sort of acceptable size, that you are supposed to be less than who you are, that the only way for the men in your life to really rise to their capacity is for somehow you to diminish. And isn't that backwards? It's getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> oh, we're in for a good time. You know, and this is even more complicated when you have other intersections on your identity, right? If you're a woman of color, if you are an indigenous woman, if your sexual identity intersects on any of those things, if your way of being a woman somehow doesn't match up with the version of femininity that you've been given and told to understand. And yet, over and over and over again in scripture, we see that Jesus' encounters with women tell such a different story. And this is something that really captured my imagination and would not let me go. You know, this is one of those things that after reading the Gospels and studying Scripture and wrestling with what it means and who Jesus is and what the precedent is that has been set for us, here is very simply what I have learned about Jesus and the ladies. is that he loves us. That he saw us as people too that there was no part of us that was too precious for conviction or for conversation, that he met us as equals, that he talked to us on our own terms, that he treated us as if we were equal to the men around us, that he, he honored us, did not belittle us, did not diminish us, often placed greater callings and giftings towards us, that, and often his, his actions or his words or his teaching or his behavior with women was considered incredibly controversial and provocative, not only for that time, but honestly for this time nowadays, to be honest. I don't think Jesus heard of the Billy Graham rule. I love when I can make a church gasp. This is it's a joy in my heart. <laughs> you ever know when you just had a dream fulfilled you never even know you had? 
<laughs> oh, that's good. You know, in a time when women were almost completely silent in literature or, or absent from literature, scripture over and over and over again affirms and celebrates and centers women's stories. We were there for all of it. And you know, it's one of those things as you begin to read through scripture, and I encourage you to do this. I love my Bible with my whole heart. And there, over and over and over again, as you read through scripture, you begin to see the story that's there. And if you're having a hard time seeing it, I encourage you to even to have a chance to read it through maybe like with a, a feminist commentary or something there beside you. Because I'll tell you what, if I ever hear somebody teach the story of Esther as if it is some sort of Disney beauty pageant again, I'm gonna throw a shoe at them. <laughs> All in Christian love, of course. I'll bless them a lot and pray for their healing after because I'm charismatic. So. <laughs> You know, in scripture you see over and over again there was a woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. There were women like Joanna and Susanna who were disciples of Jesus and traveled with him and financed the work of the ministry. Is anybody here for women who can bankroll? I am here for the ladies who can bankroll. Bless you, bless you. You know, there's this other little uh, story that's always really captured my imagination. It was, uh, happened actually in the, in the temple and it was a Sabbath. Just hang on a hot second. It was on the Sabbath, and there's this woman there who's crippled. She's bent over almost entirely in half, and Jesus heals her. And it was a bit of a setup from the religious leaders because they wanted him to violate the Sabbath so they would have something to criticize him about. And so they do, and he tells them, is not this daughter of Abraham worth as much as any lamb? And if a lamb went over the edge of the cliff, would you not uh, rescue it on the Sabbath? And is not this daughter of Abraham worth just as much as a lamb who had gone over the cliff? And so on top of teaching them who the Sabbath actually is for, but on top of that, there's that phrase hidden in there that would have sent shockwaves through every leader in that room because he used the phrase daughter of Abraham. And it had only ever been sons of Abraham. It had only ever been sons of Abraham. And with one phrase, he says, no, no, no. You have just as much of, an, uh, of a right to the covenant. You are just as much of an heir to the covenant and you are just as much a part of this story as the sons of Abraham. I love those little moments in the Gospels where you begin to see how Jesus was resetting and shifting the story of women, not only in his own tradition, but for all of us. His stories uh, and encounters with women just tell such a different story. One of my favorite stories, and I say this about all of them so you'll get used to that. I mean it every time. Um, it actually happens with Mary Magdalene and it's just after the crucifixion. And so the crucifixion has just happened. This is in the book of John. If you're looking for a chance to, you know, fact check me. And in this story, um, Jesus has been taken down from the cross. He's been laid in the tomb. And Mary Magdalene decides she's going to go to the tomb to grieve and to anoint his body and to weep. And she gets there and the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. And she immediately runs off to tell the disciples. And of course, Peter and John, you know, like any judicious disciple would do, decide to fact check. So they go back to the tomb and they look inside and yes, it is in fact empty. Thank you, gentlemen. We appreciate that. <laughs> That's fantastic. And then he, uh, and then they leave. They go back home to say yes, to verify the story. And she remains weeping 
longing to find Jesus. And then there's two angels that are in the tomb and they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken my master and I don't know where he has gone. If you know where he is, would you tell me? Because all I want is him. And then she sees someone out the corner of her eye and she thinks it's the gardener. And the gardener, who's actually Jesus, says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says again, they have taken my teacher and I don't know where he is. Would you tell me where he is so I can go and find him? And in that moment, he says this one thing. He says her name. He says, Mary. And there is a moment that happens because the very next thing that Jesus says is, don't cling to me. And there are a lot of people who are much smarter than I am and who are theologians and academics and have written pages and pages and pages of things about the ascension and you know, matter and the incarnation and things, and they're all right. I'm sure that they're all much smarter than me and they know what they're talking about, but part of me thinks that she just launched herself at him, right? I mean, I have four children and sometimes hugs can feel a bit like strangling. <laughs> and I think she just must have launched herself at him right, and just held on to him so tight, there's a sense of laughter to it to me in my reading of it. And it says, don't cling to me. And then he proceeds to tell her, and they have this moment in the, in the garden when he has a chance to tell her, go and tell everyone. Go and tell the disciples. In the Christian tradition, they call Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles, that she was commissioned as the first preacher of the resurrection. And you know what? It would have been much tidier and much better and much easier for the early church if Jesus had arranged for there to be a quorum of very wealthy and influential and respected Jewish men at the tomb when he strode out. Nobody's talked to Jesus about branding and marketing. I mean, we are talking about a time when a woman's word was not even considered admissible in court or believed in court. You can't even imagine such a thing, can you? And yet, I'm getting punchy without coffee, aren't I? Somebody needs to pray for me. And yet, he commissions her as the first preacher of the resurrection, sends her out. It was just this sense of holy subversion to it of Jesus saying, I don't need to prove anything to anybody. I'm just ready to embody what is now. And what is now is that women have more capacity and more place in this story than perhaps people have ever realized. You know, one writer that I really like, if you haven't read her book yet, I encourage you to do so. It's called Half the Church. Um, It's by Carolyn Custis James. She's a Bible teacher. I should probably get a cut from her publisher for how much I recommend this book. But... She always says that patriarchy might be the backdrop of the Bible, but it is not the mandate of the Bible. And that to me is a really key distinction that we need to make in the church, particularly in this moment, because I think we can even trace the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in scripture to show that God is moving us forward into something that looks very different than what our culture would say it actually needs to be. For too long, we have identified and acted like patriarchy is the mandate of the Bible when actually this is the curse we're supposed to be embodying the redemption from. No matter how many Jesus-y words you attach to it, it's still a curse. 
This is still the thing that we are meant to be free from, that we are meant to be redeeming, that we are meant to be embodying our freedom from. You know, there is something that a lot of people will ask me about Jesus Feminist. They'll ask me why I wrote it. And I did feel a tremendous sense of calling and purpose when I was working on that book, but there's also a part of me that would like to respond with, isn't the better question why it's necessary? The book, imperfect as it is, and it is imperfect, the reason why is because it was necessary because it was necessary in our culture and it is still very necessary, I believe, in our churches. I think we are at a tipping point and at a moment of reckoning, not only in the world but in our churches, that there is this sense of apocalyptic shift in the truest sense of that word, meaning like an unveiling. And the unveiling is key because light will disrupt the darkness. And that is what we are here to do. And so a lot of times when things like this happen, you begin to learn and to pay attention to the fact that women are more likely to die or be maimed by cancer, malaria, accidents, and war combined. And yet they'll be more likely to die by male violence. Those four things combined don't kill as many women as male violence does. That one-third of women have experienced physical and sexual abuse, one third. And when you realize that 70% of the world's poorest people are women, and when you begin to realize that women all over the world are suffering from unequal access to healthcare and to education and to work and personhood even, when you begin to pay attention to the fact that you are not getting equal pay for equal work, even though you're doing the exact same job, when you begin to see that high fashion somehow thinks it's a great way to sell shoes if you depict highly sexualized violence against women, when you are paying attention to the Me Too or the Time's Up movement or the Church Too movement, when you begin to see the reckoning that's happening about powerful men for women in the workplace, whether it's at the farm field or at the restaurant or in their churches. And I can't tell you how many women I talked to who met their Harvey Weinstein at youth group or in their Christian college or their Bible study. We are in a moment right now where these things are being unveiled and we should be thanking God for that because the light coming to these dark corners is the only way that we are going to be able to move towards healing and wholeness. You know, and the thing is too, is when I I think about moments like this, and, and the thing that I think is very key for us to remember is that these are not stats, and these are not just stories, and these are not hashtags. These are people. These are people made in the image of God that every single one of them has mattered, that they are not collateral damage, that every single one of them matters to God. And I think that this is a moment for us as the church to participate fully in the dismantling of of patriarchy and the ushering in of the age of the spirit and the age of what this could actually look like. And I'll tell you why. Patriarchy is not God's dream for humanity. It never was and it never will be. In scripture, you can see that even patriarchy, this idea of men ruling over women, 
being more important than women, being centered over women, valued more than women, that this whole system cripples men and women. That we have done no favors to one another. Nobody benefits from this system. This is why it's a curse. This is why this is something that was a consequence of the fall all the way back in the book of Genesis. And you know what, here's the thing too. So that might be the reality for the world and for our culture. But that is not our reality. That is not where we live in because we have been redeemed from the curse because we now have life and life more abundant in Jesus Christ. I am not interested in propping up the world's dead systems with Jesus-y language. I am not interested in baptizing these things and somehow acting like they are holy because we have sacred language all over them. They were evil then, they are evil now. This is a cultural thing and I do not know what else to call it other than powers and principalities that need to be dismantled. And we are part of that dismantling. We are part of how those things are redeemed. We are part of how those things are healed. We are a part of giving people a glimpse of what life looks like in the kingdom of God, what God's heart and intent and dream is for men and women in the world. And it will not and never does look like this. Oh, that's good preaching for 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Woo! That is good. That is good stuff. You know, and I'll tell you this too, in Jesus we are invited to participate fully. However God has gifted you, however God has called you, however you have been anointed and set apart, how, whatever work it is that you do or season of life you in, your whole life embodies and tells a story about what you actually believe and know and even hope about God. Everything that you do. And you know what, so we can choose then to move with God further into redemption, further into truth telling, further into hope, or we can choose to continue to prop up and be silent and act like it's all fine and everything's fine and isn't it just all marvelous how fine it is, let's all just be quiet and pretend that's good. The absence of these things is not peacemaking. There's a really big difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking and you will disrupt the powers of darkness simply by being light. That is what you do by your very nature. You know, one of my favorite passages of scripture, I mean at this time too, um, it's over in the book of Acts, of course it is, I come from a Pentecostal background, we love the book of Acts. And so I'm over in the book of Acts and it's after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. So Jesus has been caught back up into heaven, the disciples all go to the upper room. Uh, I guess to figure out what's next and make us have a strategy meeting. And so they get up there and they sit down, they start to pray. And it says over in Acts chapter two in verse one, it says, without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force, no one could tell where it came from. Are you getting goosebumps yet? I always do when I read this. It filled the whole building. And then like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. They pour out into the streets. Everybody comes running. Peter starts to preach and he preaches a sermon like nothing anybody has ever heard before and he pulls all the way back to the prophet Joel and grabs a prophecy from the book of Joel and pulls it into that sermon and he talks about this and he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on every kind of people. 
Your sons will prophesy, also your daughters. Your young will see visions. Your old will dream dreams. When the time comes, I will pour out my spirit on those who serve me, men and women both, and they will prophesy. And I'll tell you this, we are not prophesying to like all the reasons why Jesus comes back on May 12th. We are prophesying to God's new world. We are prophesying to the life that we have found in Jesus. We are prophesying to God's dream and God's wholeness and God's redemption and resurrection and rescue. We are always prophesying our whole lives to the shalom of God to the thing that we have been called and are entering into. You know, one thing is too, is that the the early church attracted the powerless in droves after this. Women, slaves, children. And the reason why is because we were where they were safe. We were where they were honored. We were where they were empowered. We were where they were taught. We were where they could lead and they could begin to rise. You know, the church right from the get-go was made up of women like Junia the Apostle and Priscilla. You know, one of the things with Junia is Paul honored her as chief among the apostles in one of his letters. He'd said that he wished that all of the disciples were more like her. And over and over again, Paul, one of these teachers that is often painted with this patriarchal or misogynistic brush, like somehow he would want to silence and bench half the church you know, just because of a, a couple of lines to, in, a, in two letters sent to specific churches and spe- specific congregations. You know, honestly, I wish people loved their Bible enough to read the whole thing because one of the things that we see about Paul is that he cared about the gospel being preached, that he cared about women, that he worked with and ordained women, not as tokens, but as leaders and pastors and evangelists As deacons, he worked with women over and over and over again. We are talking about the man who wrote in Galatians that therefore in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. And his whole ministry embodied that. You know, I think that our churches should be an empowering place and an equipping place and a safe place for the people who are powerless and marginalized among us that they should be centered and honored, not as tokens, but as people who bear the image of God and have valuable things to teach us. I would love to see the church reclaim our historic place in this. I would love for us to once again stand as a beacon in the midst of the darkness of this world and all the ways that they have messed up with how they have treated and um, marginalized women and abused women and reduced the image of God in them, that these places, these spaces would give people a glimpse of what God's heart is for women, of what it looks like when men and women are walking in wholeness and in unity and in goodness. I believe that the daughters of the earth right now are crying out for justice, that we are crying out for peace, that we are crying out for healing, And I think that we, as the people of God, are part of how this happens. You know, whether we are in the developed world or in the developing world, no matter where we are caught in this, we have all been buried under these cultural things, these the uh, systems and structures. And so as the people of God, I believe that we are called to bravely erect in the here and in the now 
and in the very teeth of these moments, signs of God's new world. Your whole life is a sign of God's new world. Your marriage, how you raise your children, your family relationships at school, at work, at home, in your neighborhood, in your church. Everything about your life is tipping your hand about what you actually believe about the nature and the character of God. And so this is your opportunity, no matter where you find yourself in your life, to embody and tell and move towards a better story. Move towards healing, to have an answer in these moments. You know, at this moment in time, I think that we really need this. I think we need the church. And I believe that you are called and equipped and that this is your moment, that this is our moment that we have been prepared for this, we have a precedent for this, we have been taught how to do this. This is, this is where we go, and this is who we are. So I wanted to pray for you this morning really quickly, um, and I'll warn you when a Pentecostal says quickly in prayer in the same sentence, it's, it's a lie. It's lies, it's always lies. And I'll say this too, I know the way that I pray may not be the way that you pray, and it may be very different than perhaps how you have heard prayer before. I hope that there's room for that. I believe that there is. I know you guys have often said that you're liturgically promiscuous, and so we're just gonna lean hard into that this morning. So let's do this. Jesus, oh, deep breaths. Jesus, you are everything to us. Thank you. Thank you for what you have given us in the Gospels. Thank you for giving us a glimpse of what it could possibly look like. Thank you for all of the ways that you have given us a path to follow. All the ways you embodied a way to do this differently. And right now I lift up every single person who is in this room. And I pray right from the start that that love that we sang about this morning, the love that we sang about and that we read scriptures from and that has resurrected us, I pray that that love would rise in them and through them. And I pray that they would come to know your love deeply and intimately, that they would have a hunger and a thirst for you, that they would be satisfied by love. I pray that they would make their home in love, that they would make it their discipline and their doctrine and their, their plumb line, their practice, their resting place and their very identity. I pray for this place, for these people to be on the path that celebrates and empowers and equips women. I pray that they would be a voice of truth and of boldness. I pray that they would be a community of possibility and hope, that they would know what it is to rise up above their cynicism and their bitterness into never wearying, never backing down resolutions of hope. And I pray that the right women would come into their lives at the right time. I have a hunch they're already here, Jesus. And I pray that we would all stay open to finding them, that we'd be watching for hints of your people. I pray that we would all be surrounded by women who know what it is to love and to champion and to push back on these old lies of women's insecurity and jealousy by how we love and champion each other. 
I pray for women who are dreamers and schemers, that women here would live just a little bit outside that good Christian lady box, and I pray somebody would clutch their pearls over you. I pray for spiritual midwives in your life, women who will breathe alongside of you as you are giving birth to the new you over and over and over again. I pray that you would have friends and mentors and pastors and leaders and preachers and policymakers and poets and prophets, moms and a few saucy aunties. I pray that you would have daughters of either your body or your heart, that you would join hands with each other in this rising, that you would be alongside of women who invite you to go deeper and make you more real, more honest, who know not only who you were and who you are today, but who you are becoming. And for those of you who are at a moment of transition or change, I pray for acceptance letters and scholarships and for opportunities to do the work that you love to do. And I pray you would have equal pay when you do it. I pray that you would find a way back to the stories of women. That the women in your lineage of faith, whether it's in your own family or it's in your community or it's in the scriptures or it's in the stories of the church, there are so many of them. I pray that you would reclaim curiosity about women and you would amplify their voices and their experiences and their influence. I pray that you would find good leaders to follow who will influence you and call you out and mentor you and coach you, challenge you, push you, step on your toes every now and again. It's good for you. And in the name of Jesus, we call out the sins of violence and rape and abuse against all women. We say no more that we call out the economic injustices and the educational inequalities and the maternal mortality rates and patriarchy and any movement that is designed to baptize inequality in sacred language or anything that is meant to diminish or silence or sideline women, all the countless ways that the image of God is abused and mistreated or broken or diminished. We call it out and we name it for what it is in the name of Jesus that it is sin that it is injustice, that it is evil, that these are the powers and the principalities and we cast them down in the name of Jesus. I pray that our lives would be a continued casting down, breaking free of these sorts of chains, that they would be weakened in the world because we are in the room and we are at work, that we would work at dismantling and setting people free from them and we would also do the work of dismantling it from our own hearts and our own minds. And girls, I want you to hear me on this. I pray that all the places where the world has hurt you, where evil has left its mark, where you have felt broken or abandoned or hurt, any places where you are feeling pain, that those places would become a wellspring of healing and wholeness in your life. I pray for your desert to begin to bloom with flowers, and I pray that any place that feels like dry, parched earth would be filled with cleansing rain and healing waters. I pray and believe for your healing, sister, and also for your wholeness.
And so I pray for your boldness and I pray for your voice to rise, that you would become acquainted of what it sounds like when your voice has strength and conviction and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would witness a new thing rising and that all those places that feel like death, that you would hear the voice of Jesus saying your name because he is there at your tomb and there's a resurrection. I pray that you would pay attention to your anger and to your joy because your calling is hiding somewhere at that intersection. And I pray that you would be someone who is a friend to the poor and to the oppressed and the marginalized, not just an ally, not an activist, not just a theologian, but a friend. And so hear me here, girls. Stop waiting for permission. Stop waiting for permission. Jesus has given you permission and it is time. And so I pray you would begin to rise up with your gifts and your words and your passions and your insight and your skill and your brain and your history and everything that you have been given and that you would rise in the fullness of God. And I pray that when you are tired and discouraged, when you are bored and you feel futile and small and ridiculous, when it is tempting to give up and shrink back, I pray that you would find rest and renewal and faith and fearlessness and boldness and new courage and new vision for new life that is coming to you in ways that would surprise you and bless not only you but everybody around you and may you now rest in your God-breathed worth. That you would stop holding your breath and hiding your gifts and ducking your head and dulling your roar and distracting your mind and stilling your hands and quieting your voice and satiating your hunger with the lesser things of this world in some misguided act of honor to the God who created you the way that you are. Because you are set apart right now in your right now life for the daily work of liberation and love and resurrection, and redemption, and renewal of all things, that you would live your life in the cadence of the redeemed. Jesus, may our eyes be open for what you are up to in the world. You are always up to something. Thank you for letting us be in on it. We're so grateful that we get to participate in the renewal that we get to participate in the resurrection, that we are in on it and invited fully to participate as we are. Thank you for walking with us. We love you and we trust you. And it is in your name that we pray, amen. Yes. Yeah. Hey, let's, uh, let's all get on our feet if you're able, because we're, we're pretty much wrapped up here. I just briefly want to say, first of all, uh, Sarah, thank you and amen. 
thank you for teaching us. Thank you for the power and the clarity of your teaching. Um, and amen to everything you said. And so I'm grateful for uh, Sarah's teaching. I'm also grateful for what I would call a priestly prayer. Uh, that's what that was, if, if you weren't aware. I would call that a priestly prayer. And maybe, you've, maybe that's a, maybe a, an experience of prayer that you've not um, been a part of before, but I would say, of course you have received priestly prayers in your life because people have put themselves in the place where they thought it was their job to tell you who you are or who God is. But the problem is many of us have heard many false priestly prayers. And so the church, one of the, one of the things we do for one another in the church is we speak true priestly prayers to one another about who we are and who God is and what we're here for. So um, yeah, thank you and amen. And uh, I, I, I wouldn't even uh, presume to add anything to Sarah's word because it was the right word for us today. So we'll simply go uh, with these parting words. Grace and peace be with you. Also with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.